0: Warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. Great to have you with us again. Just ahead on today's show, defense debate. Western officials are meeting today. They're discussing sending much-needed battle tanks to Ukraine, and it comes ahead of a feared new Russian offensive. Germany's still a key holdout, but talks are ongoing. We'll have a live report and streaming gleaming. Wall Street applauding strong results from Netflix. Its cheaper ad-supported subscription tier really helping lure in millions of new customers. Also a surprise management move. We'll have the details just ahead. But first, the action on global markets, uh, mostly higher open currently on tap for Wall Street, save uh, for the Dow. The Dow is currently down fractionally. The bulls, though, hoping for a bounce after three straight days of losses driven by concerns about slowing economic growth and continued hawkish Fed speak. Europe, meantime, continues its strong 2023 advance. But New pain and Tech, Alphabet, now the latest firm to announce a major round of layoffs. Thousands of workers being cut globally. We will discuss in just a moment. It is also the last day of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. First move, closing out the week in style with an array of important guests from the conference. We'll hear from Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez on the fight to alleviate inequality. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres on the immediate steps needed to combat climate change. Plus, the prime minister of Greece on the importance of standing united with Ukraine. And the conflict in Ukraine is where we begin today's program. We begin on the sidelines of a high-stakes defense meeting where the German defense minister has just told reporters no decision has been made yet on whether to send Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. Right now, ministers from dozens of countries are debating how to boost Ukraine's military capabilities. Ukraine's President Zelensky opened the meeting calling for more assistance without delay.
1: The war started by Russia does not allow delays. And I and I can thank you hundreds
2: of times. And it will be absolutely just and fair, given all that we have already done. But but hundreds of thank you
1: are not
0: hundreds of tanks. And CNN's Oren Lieberman joins me from the Pentagon. Oren, good to have you. So what is the path forward here, right? Because we know that there are certain European nations, Poland, Finland, for example, who would like to send tanks, but can't do so without Germany's okay. So what's the path forward look like?
3: As of right now, the plan is for the U.S. and other countries to put pressure on Germany to make a decision. But as you pointed out, we ju- just heard from Germany's very new defense minister, Boris Pistorius, that no decision has yet been made. This is Ukrainian President Vol- Volodymyr Zelensky says, look, time is not on our side. It's on Russia's side pushing the U.S. and other countries to move faster. The question is, what will cause Germany to make a decision? And that's what the U.S. and others are trying to figure out. As you point out, Poland has been very vocal about this. They've been frustrated, and that, as we have just seen, has boiled over. They're now threatening just to send tanks. Normally, because these are German-made leopard tanks, you would need Germany's approval before exporting them to another country. Finland has also expressed its willingness to send leopard tanks, and about a dozen other countries in Europe have these, so these are not in short supply. But Germany is just too timid right now and has not yet made a decision. Up until now, it appeared to be a a this-for-that. Germany was waiting for the U.S. to announce its own sending of tanks, but the U.S. has made clear that the main U.S. tank known as the Abrams is simply too complex and too much of a maintenance nightmare too heavy to send to Ukraine and saying, look, that's not the issue here. The issue is Germany needs to approve this. And Rahel, that's what we're watching now. Does Germany shift on this one? Or, for example, does Poland just do what it's threatening to do, send its tanks and wait to see what the consequences are from Germany?
0: Well, that's an interesting point, Orrin. I mean, if we, in fact, we do see that type of action from Poland. You have to wonder what type of division that would create between Poland and Germany. Lots to watch here. Orrin Lieberman, thank you. Now to global economic uncertainties, which are being blamed for a punishing new round of job losses in tech. Google parent company Alphabet announcing today that 12,000 workers will lose their jobs worldwide. That's amid a post-lockdown spending pullback by clients. But in the streaming space, Signs of resilience, Netflix saying that it is seeing stronger than expected subscriber growth, more than seven and a half million new quarter customers in the last quarter alone. And that's thanks to popular new shows like Adam's Family spinoff Wednesday. Netflix assuring investors that it's also keeping costs in check. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, we'll get to Netflix in just a moment, but I want to start with Alphabet. So help me put this in context. 12,000 workers. I mean, how much of a cut is that percentage-wise? Alphabet is a huge company, obviously, but also how much of this is a correction, perhaps, if you can call it that, from the massive expansion the company saw during the pandemic?
4: Yeah, that's a great point, Rahal. It's about 6% of the global headcount at Alphabet. So that is pretty significant, and I think that what you have going on here is that Alphabet, uh, which owns Google, YouTube, of course, really ramped up aggressively and now realizes, like many other tech companies, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, that they have to scale back. And Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai even admitted saying, over the past two years, we've seen periods of dramatic growth to match and fuel that growth. We hired for a different economic reality than the one we face today. And, you know, if you didn't know who that was saying that, you could have thought that it was Mark Zuckerberg, that it was Satya Nadella, that it was someone, you know, at pretty much any tech company right now. They all ramped up aggressively. And unfortunately, demand is not going to be there as we have all these worries about a recession.
0: Paul, to your point, it's sort of like fill in the blank, right? Because we continue to hear it sort of day after day, week after week. It seems like the last few weeks, at least. I want to now turn to Netflix. Paul, as you know, 2022 was a brutal year for the company. The stock uh, finished lower about 38 percent. The company reported that it was losing subscribers. It was brutal, to say the least. And now that seems to have changed. What happened
4: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things at play. Even though Netflix did not break down specifically how much of the growth came from the new ad-supported, cheaper subscription, it is interesting to see that Netflix had this level of growth. And the company did admit on the conference call, which I think is reassuring some investors today, that the growth they saw is new customers. They didn't have as many... Paying premium subscribers going down to the ad tier, even though it costs less money. So I think that's reassuring that people at Netflix that already had more expensive plans didn't look to cut costs. But, you know, Netflix and streaming, what we've really quickly learned, Rahel, is it's all about hits. Remember, this time a year ago, it was all about Squid Game and how that was saving Netflix. Now it's Wednesday. It was such a phenomenal hit for the company. And it really just goes to show that when you're in streaming media, if you have a property like Wednesday at Netflix, like The Mandalorian at Disney, you can rely on those big fans coming back, at least for whenever a new season is, they're going to be subscribing.
0: Oh, and by the way, to your point, Paul, if you can also manage to spend a bit less on content and bring in more people, then you might just be able to turn it around, especially uh, and even in the midst of a very crowded field and streaming. Paula Monica, good to have you. Have a good weekend. Well, in too deep trouble for Genesis, the cryptocurrency broker. It's filing for Chapter 11 after suffering major losses following the collapse of FTX and the hedge fund Three Arrows Capital. Anna Stewart is on the story. Anna, good to have you. So what happened here? I mean, how much of this do you think is
5: directly tied to FTX or something else entirely? I mean, that is a good question because certainly this is one of the dominoes that has fallen since the collapse of FTX. But actually, this lending platform of Genesis was actually in trouble even before then because its two biggest borrowers were Three Arrows and Alameda Research. The latter was linked to FTX, but also Three Arrows, which went bust even before. So the writing was on the wall, I'd say, from around November when Genesis actually stopped withdrawals from their customers on the lending platform. That was when you kind of really knew that, you know, stuff was going to hit the fan, let's say. Added to that, I would say there are some other lines around this particular company that are interesting. Genesis was already in a dispute with Gemini, which is the company founded by the Winklevoss brothers. Uh, That is regarding a joint crypto um, platform, I would say, called Earn. We could get into that as a product, but I won't because we do not have the time. But essentially, Gemini says that Genesis owes the investors of Earn some $900 million dollars. Add to that the fact that Genesis and Gemini both were charged by the SEC just over a week ago for illegally selling securities to investors. I would be amazed if anyone could follow all of that, but it doesn't really surprise me that Genesis's uh, lending platform has filed for bankruptcy. Listen, I know we say it a lot, but with these lending platforms in crypto, they are not regulated. They do not need to have um, a capital cushion as you would with a traditional fiat bank. We see this time and time again. Many of their customers are also in crypto, are also unregulated, also don't have good cash, uh, capital cushions. And also, of course, there are many scams in there as well. So the news this morning, you're kind of like, plus ça change.
0: It's a lot to keep track of. But one thing that I would bet that viewers can keep track of is that 2022 was a tough year for crypto. (laughs) Uh, It was called Crypto Winter, which essentially just means a pretty significant uh, fall in value. And uh, we don't have much time, but are we starting to
5: see signs of a potential thawing? Well, I mean, like after the litany of crypto disasters last year and the fact that the fallout continues, you would be amazed to think that perhaps the crypto winter is thawing. But looking at prices, perhaps Bitcoin is up 25% over the last month. Ethereum, which is the leading alternative cryptocurrency, also up by around more than 30%. I'm sure plenty of people will roll their eyes and say, yeah, until the next big uh, crypto bankruptcy or scam. They may well be right. But listen, if you love crypto, if you hate crypto, if you just want to learn a little bit more about it, The next episode of Decoded is for you. We spent the last couple of months with the team trying to decode cryptocurrency, hugely challenging, great fun as well. We have a cool episode coming out next weekend, January the 28th. I hope you get to see it.
0: Who better to tackle it? Hugely challenging, but I have no doubt, Anna, that you uh, you handled it well. Anna, it's interesting. I'll just say before I let you go, a friend to me last night talked about crypto thawing and said, crypto is back. I don't know about that. We'll have to wait and see, but good to have you nonetheless. Thank you, Anna Stewart. Well, after a three year COVID ban, China says that it will allow tour operators to resume overseas package holidays for Chinese vacationers to certain countries. Right now, China is also facing one of the busiest travel days of the year for travel, with millions heading home to celebrate the Lunar New Year holiday this weekend. Let's bring in Mark Stewart in Hong Kong. Mark, so help me understand, put this in context for me, how large of crowds are we expecting? Because I would imagine that there is also a fair bit of trepidation about COVID right now. So how large of crowds are we talking about here?
6: Right, Rahel. Well, let me just start by saying that Chinese government officials have emphasized the point that they feel that the number of COVID cases has peaked in many parts of the country. So the stage is set for what is described as the largest human migration on Earth, or at least that's what past history has shown. If you look at the broader picture, 1.4 billion people living in China, but there may be as many as 2 billion individual trips. And today, if we look across China, people are traveling by air, by sea. They are driving. They are flying. Uh, A very busy scene at travel hubs all across the country. With that said, of course, there is some concern about the spread of COVID. While health officials do again feel there, there has been this peak, the question is whether or not rural areas are perhaps in as strong shape as city centers, if anything, because of health resources that are available. But this is a very cherished time of year. This is a a time of year that people across Asia really uh, look forward to. Uh, And historically speaking, this has been something that's been on hold for about two to three years in many parts of the world because of COVID. So people are trying to make that effort to, to see their loved ones, to see their family and friends. You did mention that some of the tour operators in China will be able to resume travel again. And that is significant because it will open up China to places such as Singapore. I'm looking at the list here. South Africa, Russia, Switzerland, Argentina, all different directions where travel has been put on hold. With that said, in some parts of the world, Chinese travelers are being met with restrictions, whether it be testing or some kind of a waiting period. So that's, that's also in, in play here. But as far as here in Hong Kong, Rahel, where I am there are rabbits everywhere. It is the year of the rabbit. People are very excited, even in conversations with, with colleagues and with sources. They are just looking forward to slowing down and spending time with family and friends.
0: Understandably. Mark Stewart, thank you, and Happy New Year. Thank you. And as we've been reporting, discussions continue at this hour about sending more military equipment to Ukraine. The talk's taking place at a meeting of defense ministers at the Ramstein Air Base in Germany. The Kremlin says that even if NATO sends more weapons, it will not prevent Russia from achieving its goals. Let's bring in CNN's chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward from Kyiv. Clarissa, help me understand it. It appears that urgency is the headline of these meetings. We heard from Zelensky saying essentially time is out on our side. Help us understand why some believe that this could be a defining moment in the war.
7: Well, Rahel, we know now that the head of the CIA, Bill Burns, actually visited uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky here in Kiev at the end of last week, and was essentially sharing with him uh, the CIA's outlook uh, in terms of what they expect from Russia in the coming weeks and months. But the fear here has been for some time now that Russia is planning a major spring offensive. The logic behind that is that 300,000 troops were mobilized, 150,000 of them were sent onto the battlefield. The remaining 150,000 have been in training and will basically be finishing their training in the coming weeks. And so the idea is that they will then be part of some kind of a spring offensive. What you heard also from Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, was this is a key moment because right now Russia is running out of ammunition but they are trying to regroup they are trying to recruit and they are trying to basically build up production internally in terms of their military industrial uh, production. And so the fear is that the longer you leave it the, lo- the greater the chances that Russia will be sort of successful in some kind of an offensive. So that's why you're seeing that note of urgency coming from Ukraine's supporters in terms of trying to get them the types of weapons that they need to act now, to act fast, and to act decisively, Rahel. And
0: the NATO Secretary General saying in Davos earlier this week, Clarissa, that the war has reached a pivotal moment. We'll wait to see. Clarissa Ward keep there. Thank you. And the war in Ukraine continues to be at the heart of the debate. On the final day of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Julia Chatterley spoke with the Prime Minister of Greece and asked him whether Europe's unified stance against Russia's aggression would be sustained.
1: We'll continue because that is the right thing to do and because our approach is yielding results. I think a lot of people were surprised by how unified the Western world was, and in particular, the European Union. But uh, we will stay the course. We will continue to support um, uh, Ukraine. And of course, we will move away as quickly as possible to reduce our dependence on Russian gas.
8: We'll talk about that. But we are almost one year on now from the the start of this war. And I spoke to the NATO Secretary General this week in particular, and it was all about the weaponry and Mm. providing greater support. And a question I asked him, and I'll, I'll ask you the same, is are you confident that continuing in this manner with support, with weaponry, is the only path to peace?
1: Is there an alternative? Because uh, certainly the alternative is not to allow the Ukrainians to be defeated in the battlefield. They need weapons uh, and we will supply them uh, with weapons in order for them to reach a point where they can negotiate a peace on their own terms. This was always the goal. Obviously, we're all looking for an end uh, to the conflict, but we need to give the Ukrainians the means that they require uh, in order to defend themselves this is what this is all about this is a war of aggression uh, this is a provocative attempt by a, a great power um, uh, to uh, sort of uh, impose its sort of uh, revisionist fantasies in terms of its uh, uh, foreign policy and we will continue to to support uh, uh, Ukraine as we've done so far
8: the Spanish Prime Minister said to me the lines of diplomacy have to remain open too with Russia
1: I think there's there's no doubt uh, there's no doubt about uh, about that. Uh, uh, but can I think you play
8: a role there? I mean, you've talked about the sort of people-to-people people connections between
1: uh, the two. No, at, at the end of the day, uh, of course, channels of communication need to be um, uh, kept open. But uh, this the, the negotiation is going to take place eventually between the two parties, uh, uh, the two parties involved, uh, and the other ones. Uh, that uh, Ukraine is the one that will uh, uh, determine uh, the terms of, of peace. And hopefully we will reach that point sooner rather than later. But the more successful they are in the battlefield, uh, I think uh, the more likely we are to reach uh, to reach that end game.
8: You mentioned it, energy security, and, and that's been the talk. And, and also that clean energy mm. is the best form of energy security for Europe in light of what we've seen particularly over the last 12 months. But also that if you're going to invest in oil and gas... Mm. It has to be infrastructure that can adapt and transition to cleaner fuels like hydrogen in the future. And I see specifically that in what you're doing in the northeast.
1: Well, first of all, it may be you know snowy and cold uh, in uh, Davos, but I can assure you that today uh, in Greece all our wind turbines are spinning. It's a sunny day uh, and we're Shall. producing a significant amount of our electricity even during the winter from renewables. This is the future. We learned something from uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, crisis, is that we need to double down on renewables. They are cheaper, and they are geopolitically safer. And This is exactly what we're doing in Greece. In the meantime, we need gas. Uh, but we need to be careful that all the gas infrastructure needs to be ready for a future after gas. For example, we're building a new uh, electricity factory uh, in northeastern uh, Greece. Yeah. It will be hydrogen ready. In the short term, it will provide electricity not just for Greece but also for the Balkans. We want to be an exporter of energy and a provider of energy security for our Balkan friends. But in the long term, uh, it, can, uh, it can burn a combination of hydrogen and gas and eventually uh, it, it can move to, to green hydrogen.
8: You know what surprises me when I look across Europe is particularly the growth in, in 2022 significantly outperforming most mm. of the other countries. Yet you still manage to bring the deficit down, which goes to your point about that 90 percent profit tax as well, even to the point where some economists out there are saying, you know, are you pushing too hard in order to bring that deficit down? I, I know getting investment grade rating in 2023 is something that you are, fundamentally focused on um, yeah, and,
1: and it, it it has to happen and it will happen will it uh, it will happen uh, once we resolve uh, the um, you know the, the political uh, sort of uh, uncertainties because as you know we will have an election in the spring I'm confident that we will win again
8: are you sacrificing popularity though by pushing so hard to get that I don't, I don't think we're,
1: but I don't think we're pushing that hard because uh, Uh, The economy has been overperforming, which means that we have generated actually more fiscal space to support businesses and households. If anything, we did the opposite. During Covid, we spent more than 40 billion. We pushed up our debt again, but the markets were tolerant because they understood that this was a um, one-off sort of policy response. But at the same time, uh, when they look at our overall debt to GDP, we bring it down uh, by almost 40 percentage points uh, in three years, the fastest reduction of all uh, European uh, countries, but we still have enough money um, uh, to support uh, vulnerable businesses and uh, households. So that's why I think our policy has been successful because it was both uh, and it is both liberal in terms of generating growth, growth, but also progressive in terms of supporting uh, the weaker households uh, and the weaker members of our society.
8: It's a delicate balance. It's been an incredibly tough three years for all nations, I think, that for all leaders. Um, Reforming at the same time, tough too, and I know you've tackled that, particularly in the tax sector as well, which goes back to the finances as well. Um, Why should the people give you more time?
1: Because we've delivered on our promises, because we're rebuilding relationships uh, of trust with with the Greek people, uh, because we've lowered taxes, we've reduced unemployment, uh, we have supported people during difficult periods, and I know this is a difficult period that we're going through, and because at the end of the day, I think experience in crisis management counts. As you said, poly crisis, we don't know what crisis will be around the corner. We're hoping um, for uh, calmer waters, but we never know what uh, the future um, uh, will throw at us. Uh, so I think the, the question of reliability, stability, uh, predictability is important uh, these days for Greeks. For the first time, they sense that the country has turned the corner. I don't think they would want to derail this path.
8: Can you avoid recession this year?
1: Oh, most definitely. We will not have a recession this year. If anything, we're likely to to grow closer uh, to 2% than 1%. This is my estimate.
0: Welcome back to First Move. Another key theme at the World Economic Forum in Davos, climate change. Julia spoke to the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, about global efforts to tackle the crisis.
2: Science tells us that if the temperature grows, above 1.5 degrees, we will be facing a very dramatic, I would say catastrophic situation in many parts of the world.
8: We're already there.
2: We are heading yeah. to 2.8, if nothing new happens, based on the policies that are presently being implemented. And we are on the verge of the moment in which, because emissions are growing, they're not reducing. The science tells us that should be reduced by 45% until 2030. The present projections give an increase of 14%. So we are still destroying deliberately the planet. And we are very close to the moment in which it will be irreversibly impossible to limit temperature growth to 1.5 degrees, which means we are close to a devastating tipping point and we are not united to face it and there is not enough political will to do it Because the sense of urgency that would be required, apparently, is not shown by most of the leaders in the world.
8: Why? Why is change so hard? Why isn't this personal for everyone? Because
2: these are tough choices. You need to change uh, the the way our economies work. We are using 1.6 planets. We cannot use 1.6 plans. We have just one. So there are tough choices that need to be made. And it's easier to go on thinking about the next elections or the polls that are be published uh, next week. And this is linked to the daily things in which... uh, So we need the understanding that we are facing the existential threat of our time and that there is no way we can sacrifice this priority to the daily priorities of uh, political uh, power struggles or uh, other forms of political activities that are still dominant in the majority of countries, including democratic countries.
8: Do you see any country that's living up to its promises, that has the policies oh, to back see, up we promises? We see lots of
2: good examples. We see lots of good examples, especially in small countries. You have several... Uh, Finland, for instance, uh, is prepared to uh, get to net zero uh, in 35. Uh, you have small island developing states, Even if they are in a very difficult debt situation, even if they lack resources, even if they are the main victims of climate change, and they are not emitters, big emitters, but they are doing investments to reduce their emissions. The problem is with the big emitters. The problem is concentrated in the G20. The G20 represents 80% of the emissions, and the G20 needs to come together together. It's not, it doesn't work to blame each other.
8: What about the fossil fuel industry? Because they have to be part of the solution too. And I think there's fury, the significant fury about the inertia, the resistance, the recognition in that industry that an existential crisis for the planet perhaps means more to them because it's an existential crisis for them personally. And so they're not cleaning up fast enough. Well,
2: everywhere in the world we have transitions. Right. No? We are not moving with uh, uh, cars uh, moved by horses here in Davos. No, Um, So everything is changing. Technology is changing. We are (laughs) not making phone calls as we were uh, 20 years ago. Uh, Economies are in transition. And one of the transitions that is absolutely essential is the transition from a dominance of fossil fuels to a dominance of renewable energy. Without that transition, we are doomed. Now, the fossil fuel industry has reacted to this By denial, uh, for decades, uh, there was recently published, uh, as you know, uh, uh, a study that showed that one of the big fossil fuel companies knew that climate change was coming. But just, It it reminds me of the tobacco industry. And their campaigns to say, well, tobacco is not so bad for the health, all this is a bit of a... Leg. It's the same kind of thing. So there was a, a set of denial. There is a lot of greenwashing. I mean, there is practically no fossil fuel company that, when they advertise, don't put lots of green things they are doing. But the truth is that, we are still addicted to fossil fuels, and government policies are still oriented in order to make fossil fuel to a certain extent predominate in their economies. We do, we give much more subsidies to the fossil fuel industry than to renewable energy.
8: At the core of this, and I think what's really geared up the conversation and the movement to some extent, of course, is, is the war in Ukraine. And I think you've been very sort of brutally honest that you too are struggling to see a resolution an end in sight to this war
2: i think for the for the time being at the present moment i do not see a chance to have any meaningful peace negotiation between the two sides that's why as un we have been involved uh, in uh, the evacuation of civilians from Azovstal, if you remember, in the Black Sea Grain Initiative, in trying to also to facilitate exports of the badly needed uh, uh, Russian fertilizers and, and food, but at the same time in trying to uh, support the efforts of the International Agency of uh, uh, Atomic Energy in relation to Zaporizhia, uh, doing our best, uh, uh, advocating for speeding the process of exchange of prisons of war and we are very much committed to all these things and they are vital, especially for the Ukrainian people that is suffering so much but uh, for the moment I do not see a chance and a very effective mediation and uh, and the impact in the suffering of the Ukrainian people is terrible and the impact in uh, uh, regional security and in the global economy is uh, uh, becoming a, a very dramatic impact because it adds to many other things. I mean inflation was already growing, then it exploded. Uh, uh, food security problems already existed. Then it exploded. Energy questions already exist. So it is it is something that adds to a situation that was already a almost perfect storm in many parts of the world.
0: And staying in Davos, the Spanish prime minister telling the crowds there that inequality remains his country's major challenge, whether it's inequality on gender, generational or geographical lines. But the clock is ticking for Pedro Sanchez. Spain is in a general election year, and he's trying to achieve a delicate balance between retaining power and reforming the economy. Julia asked him, can he do both?
8: You've come with a message from Spain, too, that your growth is set to outperform, average of other EU nations, your inflation is lower, your spending is high, it is an election year. As we've mentioned, is that sustainable? How are you approaching the combination of spending, civil servants' wages going up, pensions keeping in line with, mm. with inflation, I saw as well, and I guess fiscal responsibility on the one hand in keeping in mind the longer term and the investment potential for the longer well, actually, term. It's a lot to juggle. Actually,
9: we're reducing the public deficit and, of course, the public debt. And um, our forecast, uh, uh, the, uh, Uh, look to uh, uh, less than 3% of our public deficit uh, for uh, 2025. What we are doing is to use these uh, next generation European Union funds, uh, which uh, means uh, over 160 billion euros for the next years to modernize our economy. And that also means structural reforms. So over the past three years, we have uh, uh, approved uh, over 190 Uh, structural reforms in Spain. Not only the labor market, the pension reform, but also vocational training, education, hydrogen, green transition, digital skills. So, you know, there's a kind of momentum uh, in Spain for the modernization of our economy and to earn competitiveness in this this twin uh, revolutions, which are of course the green transition and the digital transformation. So we have we have the finance uh, resources coming from Brussels, we have the reforms, and we have also the political will to do so. And this is, I think, uh, a very uh, important message uh, uh, to to the Spaniards, but also to the foreign investors, because last year uh, we uh, increased by close to 24% our FDI. Mm. So there's also a commitment and the confidence among foreign investors in the possibilities of the Spanish economy.
8: You know, in the midst of the debt crisis, um, quite a senior uh, European leader said to me, "Um, Julia, we all know how to reform. We just don't know how to reform and get re-elected doing it. (laughs) And um, I think, as you're saying, you're sort of trying to find the balance there and and succeeding. Why should the Spanish people vote for you? Why should they give you longer? And I guess tied to that question, um, where do you feel like you've let them down? and and you'd like to course correct in another term.
9: So uh, the main duty in Spain, and I I think it's worldwide, but especially in Spain is inequality. Gender inequality, generational inequality, territorial inequality. This is our major challenge. Uh, So this is my main duty. And uh, I think that elections also uh, is a debate of, uh, of, of the future. What are you proposing for the future? And what I propose to my uh, citizens is to consolidate all these transformations and to win the future, and not to return to a past that uh, doesn't understand the world that we are living in. So, you know, I I have uh, good expectations for the Spanish presidency of the European Union and, of course, for the general elections that will be uh, next December.
8: So you think you can win?
9: Well, I work for that.
0: And also in Davos, one of the world's most famous football clubs. But what is it doing there? It's a question people have been asking after Manchester United set up a shop in Davos with a luxury lounge. The club insists that it's designed to entertain clients and partners rather than to woo new buyers after the club went on sale. Larry Medoa went to investigate.
6: Now that is something you don't see here every day at the Davos Promenade at the World Economic Forum, one of the world's biggest sports teams, Manchester United. Currently fighting for the Premiership title, they have their own space here. It's very slick looking, they're taking meetings, people are having a coffee, maybe discussing the game. If I was looking for a buyer or a sports team, this is where I would come. Because all the wealthy people are here. If I was looking for a shirt sponsor, this is also the place to come. Because again, all the world's wealthiest people are here. And here's the thing, Manchester United's presence at the World Economic Forum has actually gotten bigger. They were first here in 2019, small space, 2020 slightly bigger, and now all this. So if they ever make an announcement, maybe it was hatched right here. You just never know, right? Barmiteau, CNN, Davos.
0: Meantime, longtime soccer rivals Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi faced off in an exhibition match in Saudi Arabia. The match was Ronaldo's Saudi debut after signing a reported two hundred million dollar contract with the Al Nassr football club. Messi and Paris Saint-Germain ultimately won the friendly 5-4. After the match, Messi shared video on his Instagram of the two rivals hugging. There, good to see the good sportsmanship. Meantime, U.S. stocks are up and running. Let's take a look. It looks like a mixed end to the week, at least start to the session. The Dow is off about two-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq and the S&P both up with the Nasdaq, the biggest winner there, about half a percent. Lots of challenges, though, for the bulls, including mixed Q4 results from the major banks and weak December retail sales numbers. Investors also eyeing the upcoming debate in Washington over raising the debt ceiling. That has the potential to really rattle the markets in the spring and early summer. But strong start to tech earnings season. Netflix shares are rallying about 8%. That is a nice rally after reporting better than expected subscription growth. Co-CEO Reed Hastings also announcing that he is stepping down from that role to become the company's executive chairman. It's a, a better start to the year than last year for Netflix. We'll see how the year shakes out. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Great to be with you. Marketplace Asia is next.